take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 136. I'm reading out of the ESV. If you have another translation, there are a few Bibles that, that you can use. And uh, uh, you can turn there to um, page 520. And uh, you can read. This psalm was originally written as a responsive psalm, where one party said one part and the other parties responded, okay? And that's how we're going to do it this morning. And your line is very simple. All you have to say is, uh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, I'll read the first line and then you read the second. And you just got to repeat that 26 times and you're good. Okay, so let's read God's word today. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth. Above the waters, excuse me. <laughs> for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. For his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. For his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, the king of the Amorites. For his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. For his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage. For his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to God, the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. So kids, what do you think this psalm is about? Maybe the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, as we come uh, to hear it, that you would help us to have ears to hear, 
Father, sometimes we can be distracted. We can think we know what things mean and, and we can uh, maybe hear the same things over and we think, oh, I already know that. But Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, Lord, to receive these things truly, genuinely, God, and respond to them in faith. Uh, we thank you and pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, if you've noticed, uh, we're sort of taking a break from the Gospel of Mark. Um, next Sunday is, is Thanksgiving, and immediately following that is Advent. And I know uh, for us as a church, we don't always stop to, to celebrate Advent each year. Sometimes if we're going through a sermon series, we just continue on right through that sermon series. But but this year, we're, we're going to, to take a break, and uh, we are going to go through Advent and uh, focus on the birth of Christ. But this week and next week, I want us to focus upon Thanksgiving, not just because it fits well into our schedule, but because it's an important topic. Today, probably more than any other time, we are more aware of the benefits of having a grateful heart. Of, of showing gratitude, and, and studies have shown that people that are more positive, people that are more joyful, more thankful, are people oftentimes that, that are more healthy. So health-wise, gratitude is a great thing, but spiritually, it's even more important. Like a grateful heart is evidence of a close relationship with God. It is understanding who God is. And likewise, an ungrateful heart reveals our misconception of who God is. Now, as Americans, it's very easy, I think, to be to fall into that trap of being ungrateful. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but there are just certain trends, certain mindsets, certain ways of thinking that's sort of built into the fabric of our country that actually lends itself towards being unthankful or ungrateful. Um, and one of those is consumerism. I mean, if you think about it, at the at the base of of consumerism uh, is this idea that people are dissatisfied. If they are going to consume things, they got to feel the need for it. So the part of the job of the advertisers is to make you feel like your life is insufficient, to make you feel like you don't have everything you need, so to feel a sense of lacking. And so to focus everything that we hear on the radio, the commercials we see on TV or the internet or the streaming services that we use, they all sort of gear themselves towards that whole idea of making you dissatisfied. And if you can be dissatisfied, then their job is done. Because you'll go out and buy whatever product or service that they have. And if you already have that service or that product, don't worry. Because a new and improved version has come out, which is even better. And so you can throw away your old one and go out and buy a new one. So you can have a greater experience with whatever that widget is that you are purchasing. Um, but also, there's sort of this mentality in our culture of self-sufficiency. Uh, what I have in my life, I have because of my efforts. I have because of my work. And so, you know, the only one that I should be thankful for, to is myself. Because I'm the one that earned this. So there's sort of those kind of mindsets. And there's, there's probably many, many, many more that are out there that just are feeding these lies into our minds all the time. And so no wonder it is so easy for us to be ungrateful. 
But, you know, obviously this isn't just an American uh, challenge or American dilemma, but a, a human one. And as we look at the Psalms, and uh, today we're going to look at Psalm 136, but even if you uh, go back to Psalm 135, 135 through 150, you see that these are what they call Psalms of, of praise, okay? Psalms of praise and thanksgiving. And Psalm 135, as a matter of fact, begins with that phrase, praise the Lord. And it also ends with that as well. As well as Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150. It's like, praise the Lord. And then it ends, praise the Lord. And so it's the idea, we must praise the Lord. Uh, and uh, the words, uh, that that word that's translated, praise the Lord, is in the Hebrew Hallelujah, but in English we sort of condense it to be Hallelujah, is is how we say it. And and these words of praise occur throughout all of these psalms, from 135 all the way through 150. And so, like I said, they're called, they're known as the Hallel Psalms or the Praise Psalms. But 136 is particularly interesting because it is referred to as the Great Hallel psalm it is the great praise song now it doesn't begin with praise the lord it doesn't end with praise the lord but it's called the great hallel song because the way it rehearses god's goodness in regards to his people and encourages them to praise him for his merciful and steadfast love and so i want us to look at this song today as a reminder for us as god's people to be thankful and, there, and as you uh, look at Psalm 136, and as we sort of read through it responsively, you see that there's sort of a beat. You know, there's sort of a, a rhythm that's running through this psalm. Right, kids? His steadfast love endures forever. You're going to go home and say, Mom, Dad, I can't get that out of my mind. Pastor Rick just got that in my head, stuck on my head. For his steadfast love endures forever. And that's okay, because that's the idea of this psalm is to get that stuck in our heads. You see, the duty we we have here again and again that it, this psalm calls us to is to give thanks over and over and over. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. It, it's sort of reminiscent of Hebrew 13, verse 15, where the writer says these words. He says, through him, that is through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Not, not just the sacrifices like the animal sacrifices, but the sacrifices of praise. You know, as I was thinking about that this week, I was just thinking about the angels in heaven that worship the Lord and the saints in glory that are praising his name and we read in the book of Revelation of the elders who fall down at the feet of Jesus, cast their crowns, and worship him continually, 24-7, the Bible says. You know, because our God is worthy to be praised. And that's the idea that we see here, that God is so great, he is worthy to be praised. And so this morning, as we look at our thankfulness to the Lord, I want us to consider three things. First of all, the focus of our thankfulness, the focus Second of all, the facts or the reasons for our thankfulness. And third, the foundation of our thankfulness. So the focus, the facts, and the foundation 
of our thankfulness. First of all, let's look at the focus or the object of our thankfulness. In our adorations, we must have an eye on who God is. We, we are to not just focus on Him as we praise and give thanks to Him, but also understand who He is. First of all, He is the true God. Um, if, you, if you look at these opening verses of Psalm 136, if you want to have your Bibles open there, you can compare there and then turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, uh, it, it mirrors what the psalmist says here as um, Moses is telling the people who the Lord is. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. And so God is not merely a, a Christian God or a Jewish God as like one God amongst many gods. He is the true God. He is the great God. He is the mighty and the awesome God. And we must see his greatness. We must see, recognize his excellence and his, the transcendence of who God is. We live in a world that has fallen and there's so many things that come into our lives and we can sometimes feel so overwhelmed and we can feel so small and insignificant and so powerless in our world to even see things change. And for some, you might just feel like the world is going down and down and down and down. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And you can be discouraged and you can be disheartened. And you can focus upon those things that are what you would see as, as, as wrong or as bad. And you can think, you know, what match is there for evil? But the psalmist reminds us that our God is a transcendent God. That he is the only true God. And as a matter of fact, he says... And verse 2, he is the God of gods. In other words, he is the God who truly rules over all the pretend deities, over all the gods of this world. Now, in America, we don't oftentimes think in those terms. You might think, well, that's for Africa or that's for India where they have multiple gods or they have statues or idols or whatever. But we have our gods. You know, we just don't call them that. And they may not have a, a physical form. You know, I, I read this week that the fastest growing religion, I think it was in America, is self-worship. Is self-worship. We are the God. We are the idol that we worship. And we think that people ought to value us and, and exalt us more. And, and so what happens is, is in the world in which we live, people have these different idols and these different gods. And they even, as Romans 1 tells us, the world suppresses the truth about who God is in Romans 1.18. But then Paul goes on and says, even though what is known about God is, is plain to everybody in humanity, that there has to be some design behind this creation. It's so magnificent and so wonderful, you know, that God has made plain who he is. People still claim to be wise in their own ideas, and they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they don't listen to who God is. But he, regardless of what people think about God, he is God of gods, uh, even though the world doesn't see it. And that's where the angels and the saints in glory, as they stand in the presence of God, can see how great he is, and they are worshiping him. But he is also, in verse 3, Lord of lords. In other words, God is sovereign. He is the sovereign one over all powers. 
whether that be evil, whether that be nature, even if that is uh, politicians and leaders and rulers, God is sovereign over all these things. God is the one, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sustains everything. If God did not sustain us, then we would just drift off into oblivion. But that's not the case because our God rules over and lords over us. So I want you to see the greatness of who your God is this morning, uh, that you might recognize that he is a God that's worthy to be praised. But, but look at verse 1. We also see that, that God is a God who is good. God, he is good, verse 1 says. Now, how good is he? Well, superlatively good. That is wonderfully good. Uh, here's how Spurgeon describes it, God's goodness. He goes, God is, is good beyond all others. Indeed, he alone is good in the highest sense. He is the source of good. He is the good of all good, the sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, and the rewarder of good. For this, he deserves the constant gratitude of his people. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know what real goodness is and enjoy it, the place to find that goodness is in God and God alone. His love is fixed upon you because he is the only God there is, and he is a God of unfailing love. Now, uh, the psalmist, to show us this goodness of God, begins to unpack the facts of God's goodness. He begins to show us where do we see that goodness of God. And so we not only look at the folk, who we are to focus on in our thanksgiving, but also the facts or the grounds of our thankfulness to the Lord. The first thing he mentions, and, and that's in, in verses 4 and following, uh, the first uh, place God's goodness is seen is in his creation in verses 4 through 9. Um, when we state the Apostles' Creed, which we do a, a number of times of the year, at the very beginning, what do we say? I believe in God the Father Almighty. What? Maker of heaven and of earth. We confess that God has been good to us by making this world that we live in and by placing us in this very good world to enjoy his creation. And the psalm, the psalmist uh, really is taking us back in verses 4 through 9. He takes us back to Genesis 1 and really echoes the language of uh, three of the six days of creation. Let me just read, uh, beginning with verse 5. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see those different days of creation. And, and he says we read of the wonders God does. Now, that word wonders uh, is something so wonderful that only God could do it. No one else is even close. They are, it's definitely is specifically the works of God that he's talking about here, the wonders that God has done. 
you know, you may have heard the joke where God and the devil have a competition and they're going to see what, who could, which one of them could make the greater thing out of the dust. And so out of dust. And so God goes first. He gathers together some dust. He breathes life into it and he makes Adam. Okay. And then he goes to the devil and says, okay, your turn. Like top that, right? And uh, Satan pulls together a pile of dust and, and God says, wait a minute, what are you doing? And, and the devil says, well, I'm gathering dust so I can try to make something. God says, not so fast. He goes, that's my dust. Get your own dust. You know, well, the reality is Satan can't make dust. God can make dust out of nothing, but Satan cannot do that, let alone make something out of the dust itself. And so as we think about God's creation, all we have to do is look at the universe and behold what God has made, right? Uh, Romans 1 tells us that God is revealed in the things he has made, okay? And, and, and so he makes his creation that it might bear testimony to who he is, that no person in the world could stand before him one day and say, I didn't know that a God existed, you know, because all of creation bears testimony. But there's another reason, brothers and sisters, that God has given us his creation, and that is for the believer, right? He has given us the beauty of the world that we live in um, to testify to the character of God, right? To remind us as his children of his great character, of his greatness in all the things that he has made. Because, you know, it will give us strength as we look at creation and we see the things that God has made Right? And we go, wow, that took a great God to do that. And we need to see that so that we might have confidence in the things that we cannot see about God, such as his steadfast love toward us. And so those things that are tangible sort of point us and remind us to the fact that those things that are intangible are also true. But we also see in verse 5, God's understanding, okay? Not only is he great, but you look at the way that God made the creation, the wisdom that he used, the understanding, the way that, that he made everything uh, is so amazing. Verse 5 says, who by understanding made the heavens? And then he talks about how he did that. He did it by, you know, spreading the earth above the waters. He knew that he needed to provide an environment in which we could live. And so God did that. And then he made these great lights. He made the sun that ruled over the day. And then he made the moon and the stars to rule over the skies at night. Everything, the way that God fits everything together is so amazing. He takes care of every little detail. And to me, I know this sounds crazy, but I think the thing that just puts the exclamation point on that statement is the dung beetle. Okay. Uh, I remember watching years ago this this uh, nature show about the dung beetle and how the dung beetle gathers up the waste of other animals and that's where that dung beetle breeds. And But it's sort of like the janitor of the universe that cleans up after all the animals and takes care of that. And I'm thinking, I would have never thought about that. But our God has thought about every single thing in the way that he has put creation together. And so we are told to consider not only God's great power, but also his wisdom and understanding in making creation. 
And if God made his creation so perfectly, skillfully given attention to every detail, and this is the way he displays his understanding in creation, then how much more true is that of redemption and what God has done in showing his steadfast love for us, right? So we strengthen our confidence in God's love for us and generate a depth of thankfulness in that love by observing the beauty of the world that he's made. So creation is the first thing he talks about, but then the other fact that he refers to in verses 10 through 22 is God's redemption, how God has redeemed his people. And in verses 10 through 22, the psalmist recounts the specific acts of goodness towards Israel. Look at, look at those, if you would, with me. Verses 10 through 15 talks about the deliverance of the people from Egypt. And then verses uh, 16 through 20 talk about him leading them through the desert and he defeats Israel's enemies who oppose them. And then finally, in verses 21 and 22, uh, the final settlement of his people in the promised land. And of course, we know that that Old Testament picture of God's redemption of his people is a is an Old Testament um uh, perspective of the redemption that we receive in Jesus Christ and that you know just like we in the past have been justified that's just like God delivering his people in the exodus you know that he he brings them out he he saves them from uh, their captivity in the same way he frees us from our sin but God does more than that even in the present we see he sanctifies us as his people, like the wilderness wanderings and the defeating of the enemies. And then finally, the future glorification. We, one day we will be in glory with God forever in heaven, just as the people in Israel were put in the promised land. This is the point I'm trying to make. I think revivalism has done so much to destroy the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our country. And so we, we come to think that, you know, uh, coming to faith in Jesus is just a decision. It's just a prayer we pray. It's just something we do in the past. But God's salvation is so much more rich and full than that. It is that sense of justifying, yes, of making us right, of being new creatures in Christ. But God is faithfully with us. Lord, every day the Lord is with you. The Lord is sustaining you. The, God is taking you through the wilderness of this world. We are only ambassadors in a, in a foreign land. And yes, there are enemies and those that oppose us. But God causes us to stand firm. But we also have the hope that one day he will take us into presence with him forever in glory. And so you see that salvation really is from past, present, and future. It is so full and so rich for those that are uh, his. So all of this, of course, points to the work of Jesus Christ, who by his life of obedience, his death, and by his resurrection has triumphed over sin and death and hell. It's triumphed over Satan and the great enemies of our souls and has won for us full and perfect redemption. Is that not reason, brothers and sisters, to give thanks and praise to God? You see... Uh, God has shown his wonderful grace to us and demonstrated that in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what does Paul say in Romans 5? But God shows his love. He doesn't just tell us he loves us. 
He doesn't just tell us about the steadfast love. He shows us his steadfast love in that, uh, for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or as John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. The love of God is supremely demonstrated in redemption and gives us reasons to give thanks to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we also see uh, in verses 23 and 24 that, that God demonstrates his love to us uh, through his providence, even in our lives, even in our weaknesses, as verse 23 puts it, our low estate. Um, last week we looked at Romans 12. And if you remember verse 3 of that passage, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think. Now, why did Paul write that to Christians? Because Christians still think pretty high of themselves, right? We still are very full of ourselves. There's a lot of flesh that needs to die, right? So Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. You know, in other words, the things that we have, we have because God has given to us. I mean, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In other words, you, you act like this is something you did, but this is a gift from God. And it's so easy for us to think so much of ourselves and our abilities, but compared to God, we are lowly. We are lowly. He is the creator. We are creatures. As you look back over your life from last Thanksgiving to this year, let me ask you, can't you trace out the many ways in which this has been true for you that God has shown his goodness, that the Lord has remembered you in your lowest state, in your weaknesses, in your frailties, where he has been tender to you when you've cried out to him over this last year to deliver you, maybe from some disaster, and, and he's been gracious and he's been patient with you. Or, or maybe as you have plunged through dark valleys where God has walked with you this past year, he sustained you and his rod and his staff they have comfort you. See, he has he not been faithful to you day after day after day? And so can you not say with the psalmist, his steadfast love endures forever? You know, uh, God is with us not only in our lowest state, but also as we face our enemies. I mean, as Christians... We have daily battles with Satan, do we not, regarding sin and temptation. And there may be times when we feel like we're taking three steps forward and then two steps back. And then three steps forward and one step back. And two steps forward and three steps back. You know, the, the Christian life, we make progress, we, we stumble, we may fall, but then we get back up, we make progress. You know, but the Lord is with us. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, 5, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. You see, Jesus Christ is, is, has been a perfect and sufficient Savior for
for you and all your struggles and in your daily battles. If you have given yourself to him, if you have relied upon his strength, if you have prayed to him and, and sought him, uh, he gives you strength. In him, there has been provision for your sins and his wounds to cleanse you and to have mercy on you. And he has purchased for you the help of his spirit to strengthen you so that you can pick yourself up from the dust and press on and stay in the fight and win victory and victory by his grace. But you can only get up because of the strength that he gives you, not because of anything in and of yourself. And so every good and perfect gift has been given to us and freely by his grace. And we have that abundant need. But not only has God given us his creation and redemption and not only his works of providence in our life that, that remind us of why we have much reason to be thankful to the Lord. But even in verse 25, he sort of um, does something a little bit different. He sort of actually goes a complete circle. And he started out by saying, give thanks to the Lord. And then he sort of comes back to that idea. Okay, in verse 25. But instead of uh, addressing just Israel, he really is talking about God's general benevolence. Okay? Uh, he, here we're reminded that God also gives food to all flesh, to every creature, every human, every animal. God is the one that provides that. Um, we sometimes refer to that as God's common grace. Jesus spoke about this general benevolence or this common grace in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, when, when he said to his Jewish listeners that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Paul also echoed that idea when he was writing to the Gentiles at Lystra. And he said that God did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. You see, these uh, the goodness of God and his common grace is given as a reason why, brothers and sisters, we are to come to the Lord. But as, as Paul tells us in Romans 1, um, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, it oftentimes people's hearts are hardened not to recognize who God is. But he is a good God, and he has demonstrated that in this psalm as we stop and we really reflect and think about our existence. And if you're watching today, maybe you're watching online via the live stream, maybe you're here in this room, I don't know, and... And you've not given your heart to the Lord, but, but he's opening your eyes this morning and you're seeing the goodness of God and you're saying, I never realized what God was like. And all of a sudden, you now are beginning to see the selfishness of your own heart. You've seen the rebellion as you sought to live your life the way you have wanted to live as opposed to the way that God has called you to live. And you recognize that and you want to repent of that sin. And this morning, I would encourage you to do that. Just to pray to the Lord and tell him exactly those things. God, I have sinned against you. Would you forgive me of my sins? And would you make me a new creature in Jesus Christ, turning from your sins and turning to him 
and obedience. And if you do that, would you contact me? Our information is on our website, kotp.org, kotp.org. Drop me a line. Call me. I'd love to talk to you further about that. And so we see that our focus and our thankfulness is to God and His goodness and His greatness. We see the facts of the, those realities that draw our hearts to be thankful for God's creation, His redemption, His providence, even His common grace. But, but what's the foundation of our thankfulness? Well, yeah, that's probably the most striking part of this psalm is that chorus, His steadfast love endures forever. You know, this sentence occurs 26 times in this psalm as a response of its affirmations about God. But the word used here for love is the Hebrew word hesed. Okay, it is God's covenant love. The, the favor that God shows to those with whom he has entered into a covenant relationship. God says, I have chose you and I have set my affection and I have set my love upon you. So it's God's oath bound love, his oath bound love, where he has committed himself to, to you, to love you. Now, that oath doesn't make God's love stronger. God's love is what it is, but it's designed to give you a stronger hope and assurance to know that God's not just saying, I love you, but he is, he is committing to you to love you. Now, now sometimes this uh, word hasid is translated, it's not usually just translated love. Oftentimes it's translated like in the ESV, uh, steadfast love. Or sometimes it's translated enduring love. Those are all good translations because God's love is enduring because he is a God of his word. God doesn't come to you like we would do and say, I love you. And then next week say, yeah, well, maybe not so much. Right? Or maybe I don't like you quite as much. Yeah, and I, I'm a, yeah, we're okay, but yeah, I just don't quite feel it. Because God's love isn't based upon his feeling, but upon his character. And so he is forever good and he does not break his covenant. So God promises that he will not stop loving those who are his children. And we gotta remember this is the God who does not lie. This is the God whose purposes cannot fail. His nature never changes, so his love is steadfast, no matter what it is that we deserve. Now, the scriptures talk about this steadfast love from Genesis to Revelation. Probably the, the, the greatest, most blatant expression of this, in the New Testament at least, is Romans 8. If you, if you would, I don't want you to turn there, I actually just want you to close your eyes. And just listen as I read Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. And just the uh, wonderful, steadfast, covenant, great, enduring love that God has for his people. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? or danger, or sword, those are all awful things. Would those separate us from the love of Christ? He goes, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
in all these things, in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, is that not wonderful news for us? Does that not stir your heart to want to give him thanks? You see, before God is loving towards us, before God shows his love or demonstrates his love for us, God isn't of himself love. He is a God of goodness and mercy and loving kindness. That's just who God is. And, and we are a people who are ever needing God's loving kindness. We ever need it. We ever are trying, we are pursuing that kind of love. Sometimes we look in all the wrong places for that kind of love, but we're ever even praying for it, ever receiving it. And so therefore, let us ever give thanks to God for that wonderful love that he has shown to us. Now, I know that there's a lot of pain in the world, a lot of suffering, difficulty, hurricanes and other natural disasters, cancer, other illnesses, marital strife and, and other relationships that are, are broken, uh, parenting problems, other problems in this world. But brothers and sisters, hear me. Hear me. But behind this world, at the core and the heart of the universe is an ultimate reality of love and mercy and goodness and kindness. A reality that we are to hope in and to rest in as we place our faith in God. So no matter how dark our lives may seem at the time, and, and there are times when our lives can seem really dark, and there are brothers and sisters in this congregation who are going through those dark times even now. But those realities are not the ultimate realities of this psalm. Above all these things, stronger than all these things, and greater are all these things, is the reality of God and his hesed love, his steadfast, enduring love, because he has entered into a covenant relationship with his people. So underneath you, if you are his child, is the everlasting arms. God holds you in the grip of his love. That is the ultimate grounds of our deepest gratitude. That is the foundation of, of our gratitude. And as you give thanks, give thanks for the steadfast love of God for you that will never fail or never <coughs> fade or never perish. It is his always, forever, stable, constant, unshakable love that he has fixed upon you. I know that's hard for us to fathom because we don't see that kind of love in the world in which we live, but that is the kind of love that he loves us. It is that reality that we can hope and that can give us praise to worship and give thanks to him. One night in February, the year 358 AD, uh, the church father, Athanasius, held an all-night church service in Alexandria, Egypt. 
Now, you might recall that Athanasius, he had been leading the fight for the eternal sonship and the deity of Jesus Christ. There were those who wanted to, to redefine the nature of Christ in a way other than what the Bible did. And Athanasius knew that for the survival of Christianity, that he must stand firm against such falsehoods. And so he did. And as a result, he made a lot of enemies, uh, probably as many, or if not more, political enemies as he did theo uh, for theological reasons. But uh, his enemies uh, worked hard to move the power of the Roman government against him. And that night, the church was surrounded by soldiers with drawn swords. And of course, the people inside were very terrified as they waited for the soldiers to burst in. Um, but with calm presence of mind, Athanasius announced the singing of Psalm 136. For his steadfast love endures forever. And, and the vast congregation responded, thundering forth 26 lines of his love, his steadfast love endures forever. And what happened was, is when the soldiers finally did burst into the church, here is this congregation singing this wonderful song. And they were staggered by the singing of these people. Well, Athanasius kept his place until the congregation was dispersed. And then he himself eventually slipped out and actually found refuge with some friends and was safe. But many citizens of Alexandria were killed that night. But the people of Athanasius' congregation never forgot that although man is evil, God is good. He is superlatively good. And his steadfast love endures forever. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we meditate upon God's word this morning. O oh Lord, our God, we confess to you that indeed the greatest enemy for our thankfulness is probably then our forgetfulness. So much of what we have enjoyed, we have um, forgotten your wonderful graciousness to us. Some, Maybe for some of us, we have credited it to our own efforts and our own energies. We have sometimes, God, even acted as if we were entitled sometimes taking things for granted. But today, Lord, we come repenting of all that and bowing down and asking you to forgive and to cleanse us even now. Lord, we pray for your work in our hearts to remember who you are and your goodness to us that we might worship you 
we recognize, God, that all that we have, we have received from your hand. We thank you for your kindness, your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for your mercies, which are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. And we praise you supremely for the cross and the empty tomb and Christ who is seated on your throne and is able to save to the uttermost all, all who come to God by him, a full and a perfect redeemer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. We ask, O oh Lord, that today is as we enjoy the many gifts of your common grace, that you would help us to, to transpose our gratitude for these creaturely comforts to a, a higher key and to express our praise and thankfulness for your redemptive love in Jesus Christ. For we ask all these things in your precious name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.